Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In Song of Myself, Walt Whitman celebrates the world to which Lazarus returned, our world. Ever the hard and unsunk ground, ever the eaters and drinkers, ever the upward and downward sun, ever the air and the ceaseless tides, ever myself and my neighbors, refreshing and wicked and real, ever the old inexplicable query, ever that thorned thumb, that breath of itches and thirsts, ever the vexers hoot, hoot, till we find where the sly one hides and bring him forth, ever love and ever the sobbing liquid of life. Whitman was our American poet of it's all good. For some, such intrigues and enjoyments lose their luster over time, especially as the gears and our equipment for partaking of them wear down. It was my mother who first told me old age is not for sissies. In his old age, C.S. Lewis also found his sunset years to be a trial. A friend of his had nearly died after some long suffering, but the doctors brought her back. Now her suffering would resume. Lewis wrote to his friend to express his sympathies for her continued life. It made him think of Lazarus in a different light, he said. But, oh, I do pity you for waking up and finding yourself still on the wrong side of the door. How awful it must have been for poor Lazarus, who had actually died, got it all over, and then was brought back to go through it all, I suppose, a few years later. I think he, not St. Stephen, ought really to be celebrated as the first martyr, said Lewis. Imagine that it is late one night in your ripe old age. You're ready for sleep. A radio or listening device of some sort is on nearby. You are absorbing the sounds as you begin to drift into unconsciousness. It is a program for baby boomers in retirement. Light sounds of the 20th century. The voice in the background belongs to Steve Winwood. You recall that he played keyboards for traffic and blind faith in the 60s and then disappeared for a while before re-emerging in the 80s with a solo album. As you drift into sleep, he is singing his hit from that second act, Wake Me Up on Judgment Day. So you sleep, but sometime later you awake with a start. Your name is being called. Come out. You have died, and now you are alive again, and it is Judgment Day. You're pleased to realize that you're alive. You had believed in resurrection, but also doubted. You feel surprised and happy. And then you recall that it is Judgment Day. Your life will be reviewed. A decision will be made about its merit that carries eternal implications. This is a sobering realization. Well, it could have been worse. Good for you that you were a decent person in most respects. 
you'd been recognized for your finer qualities. According to your obituary, which is found conveniently on a wooden table nearby, you had accomplished quite a lot. There are other documents on the table. Someone has prepared a case for your defense. You find assembled ample evidence to justify your life. There's a roster of witnesses who will testify on your behalf. Aunt Betty, you always thought you were such a dear, sweet child, is listed there. So is the nurse whose face is the last one that you recall seeing from beyond the Great Divide. You were a friendly patient at the nursing home. There is a lengthy handwritten, handwritten description of the many fine moments of your life. Acts of kindness are listed there. Your reading takes you back to instances of bravery and moments of devotion. Your sacrifices, your struggles with temptation are noted with no omissions. You are touched that these would be remembered. Perhaps you are more than decent. Still, you pause in the midst of preparations and wonder about the prosecution, what case might be brought against you. Some of the evidence and most of the witnesses will be obvious, but will there be surprises, unexpected witnesses with damning testimony? When the verdict comes, will you stand or fall? That's an unnerving question. A courteous stranger appears. He's come to lead you to the courthouse. As you ascend the steps, your apprehension rises a bit. Your guide leaves you at a table in an empty courtroom. You review your case and think about your closing statement. You had always wanted to ask the judge a thing or two yourself. You had been bothered by some aspects of his management of all creation and especially of the context of your own life. But now you do not dare. It will be enough to survive the trial. Perhaps there will be a safe time later to put some questions to the Lord. Hours pass. No one comes. Prosecutor's table is across the way. It's covered with stacks of documents labeled with your name. They contain the case against you, you surmise. More time passes. Still, you are alone. Curiosity begins to rise. What evidence does the adversary have against you? So you slowly stroll in that direction. You take a look around the room. It's still empty, so you peek. And yes, there is a list of witnesses. Heavens. A child is named whom your group would tease in school. A prisoner you promised you would visit receives a mention. You never found the time. There are other witnesses. The list is disturbingly long. Some are people with whom you lived and worked most intimately. Others are strangers you encountered in traffic when you were in a hurry and they found themselves in your way and you communicated with glances and gestures. A collection of large volumes catches your attention. Ten Commandments, Violations, Volume 1, The Early Years. Volumes 3 and 4 are labeled Midlife Crisis, and they are extra thick. You wonder who did the illustrations. There is a printout of crimes and misdemeanors. The file is labeled, I was hungry, but you didn't feed. Beneath it, there's another 
I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. There are similar files stacked nearby, but by now you have no appetite to look. You had never imagined that the case against the merit of your life would be so thorough. But where did they get that information? Will the judge understand that you did try and that most often you did do the best you could? You return to your table. There is good evidence on your behalf. Will it be enough? Hours later, the stranger reappears. He simply says, you're free to leave whenever you're ready. You're relieved but curious. You mean I'm not on trial? The stranger laughs. No. Have you imagined that you would be? When you fail to answer, he continues, Do you then not remember your religion? You scratch your head. Frankly, my religion has always been a bit confusing in some respects. What's my religion got to say about the final judgment? Well, I thought you would know. It makes it beside the point. You're about to protest by pointing to all the evidence at the tables of the defense and the prosecution. It had certainly appeared that a judgment was in the making. But now you notice that the list of witnesses has vanished and that the tables are empty and that the evidence has disappeared. On the judge's bench, however, there is something new. You see a plate and a goblet. The stranger holds the cup and beckons you to drink. As you take the cup, you recall another song by the man who had been singing while you went to sleep. It's odd that you would think of it. But Steve Winwood also had a song about a cup. While there is time, let's go out and feel everything. If you hold me, I will let you into my dreams. For time's like a river rolling on to nowhere. We must live while we can, then we drink our cup of nothing. Wonder, am I nowhere? Am I about to drink the cup of nothing? And then you are overwhelmed with sadness for all that will be lost in a cup of nothing. No more the hard and unsunk ground. No more the eaters and drinkers, the upward and downward sun, the air and the ceaseless tides. No more myself and my neighbors refreshing and wicked and real. No more the old inexplicable query, that thorned thumb, that breath of itches and thirst, the vexers, hoot, hoot, till we find where the sly one hides and bring him forth. No more love and the sobbing liquid of life. All of it would disappear in the cup of nothing that we are told by some will be our drink at the end of life. But as you approach the bench, you notice that on the plate there is a loaf of bread, and the goblet is not a cup of nothing. It is filled actually with wine. The stranger holds them out for you. His hands and his feet are scarred. He invites you. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Let's not take for granted our routine. What happens here on Sundays cuts 
to the value and meaning and direction of our world. What's on that plate and in that cup from which we eat and drink every Sunday morning? It is not the judgment that we and others dish out for things that we've thought or done but shouldn't have. Instead, we drink divine forgiveness, the blood of Christ, cup of salvation. Holy Communion signifies the grace that undergirds that sense that we get from just a few special people in our lives that in their love for us, the question of our worthiness is moot. It is here that we learn that the love, for example, of a mother for her newborn child is godlike. We drink that truth here every Sunday morning. And six days a week, we may oscillate between weariness with life and dread that we are losing it. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so many assignments, chores, and bills to pay, I'm tired of living. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's all good and it's going by too quickly. I'm scared of dying. So we walk into church burdened by both weariness and fear. And we walk up to the rail and hold out our hands, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. We eat in fellowship and communion with each other to help each other bear our loads. And we eat Christ, communion with God and whom we and those we love are safe from annihilation. In lieu of condemnation, we are served forgiveness. In lieu of death, eternal life. Lazarus, come out and live. <laughs> 